0: The National Security Podcast is taking a short break for the holidays, so we're revisiting some of our most popular episodes
1: from 2023. From all of us at the ANU National Security College, happy holidays. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, a Senior Fellow at the ANU National Security College. I'm also the Director of Intelligence at CyberCX. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Beck Shrimpton, director at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, responsible for convening the Sydney Dialogue, which is the premier policy summit for critical emerging cyber and space technology. Beck, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Hello, Catherine. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So this podcast is about big tech, which gets a bit of a bad rap these days. We know it's very powerful uh, and we know that it's telling us something about a broader trend in national security, that a lot of power that once resided with governments only now sits with the private sector. Um, but there's more to this story. Um, We also are seeing around the world, um, China started it, but the US is trying to catch up, um, I would argue, a reassertion of state over market. Industry policy is back in vogue. And of course, technology is one of the big sites of geopolitical contest of our era. Uh, We're moving away from globalisation to more of an emphasis on sovereignty, industry policy uh, and trusted allies and partners rather than the world at large. So to help me unpack all of this, Beck, I'm not even sure where to start, but I'm going to throw something uh, to you to get your observations, um, which is a very broad conversation. Why do you think that we are having a conversation on the National Security Podcast about big tech?
0: Well, a great introduction, Catherine, for a start, thank you, and a great question to start with, but I would, uh, I would answer that in, uh, in a relatively simple way and just say um, you kind of almost said it yourself there. We've really seen the locus of innovation and the drive of commercially available technology um, move into the hands of the private sector, very firmly into the hands of the private sector. Certainly in Western countries and under a market-led or a market-oriented model. So what we've um, and what we've seen accompany that, I think, is not only that change of of locus of of innovation and change, um, but we have also seen um, a comp- the, the speed at which technology is evolving, the speed at which uh, companies are adapting, technology is actually being applied and commercialised, that very speed has completely changed the dynamics of the technology landscape. And it has, in my view, meant that technology is now actually a driver of geopolitics where before it might have been a, something of a support act, now it is uh, it is quite firmly in the lead in, in many areas with governments scrambling to catch up, to understand how to legislate correctly, how to regulate correctly, um, to understand where we're coming up against some really difficult challenges that are stemming not only from differences, and you again you hit this on your on your excellent intro, but you know, really differences in the model of state over market and that relationship between industry and government. Um, so we, we are seeing a bit of a reaction here, but, um, you know, again, it's it's, it's going to come down to speed, it's going to come down to adaptability, and it's going to come down to understanding exactly what's happening. And I think we're just at the start of that conversation and we're really just gripping up um, how to respond. And regrettably, we, we are in a situation where we're responding to um, to what China has done and what China has uh, thrown down as the as the the gauntlet in several technologies it has been organized in a in a very different way to what we have for a number of years so you know and a number of interesting and complex dynamics at play, but this is a hundred percent a national security issue now it is unavoidably so
1: Where do you see all of this going back so it's popular to talk about competing visions. We have an authoritarian vision, which is often byword for China. We have a democratic vision, which is often byword for a US centred order. Where do you see this going? Do do you see us headed towards um, kind of levels of of cooperation in some areas, but contest in others when it comes to tech? Do you see um, a splitting of the supply chain? And if so, what does that look like? Do you see the West just starting to look more like China uh, and starting to control our tech industrial base uh, like China's been doing, as you suggested, for um, some decades now, back in the 1990s, if we think about when the Great Firewall, for instance, was going up in China?
0: Again, really great questions. And um... Don't let me forget, but I actually want to get your take on some of this as well. So either feel free to, to to jump in and comment as I'm talking, Catherine, or or I want to. I also want to hear from you on this one. Um, I shy away a little bit from overly simplistic and binary um, descriptions, I guess, or or um, perceptions. Um, so the authoritarian democratic. Divide. It is important because I believe technology in itself is fundamentally value neutral and where it gets its value from and, you know, where it gets its um, power from, its ability to either, um, you know, uplift and empower and give voice to and democratise or to oppress um, and surveil and monitor, etc., that context is given to technology by the value system and the political framework and the governance framework within which it is applied. So one of the problems that we have at the moment is that there's um, technology has got ahead of those policy frameworks and often ahead of legal frameworks. So we're sort of working in something of a vacuum of certainty around the rules of the road, around standards. These are being de facto set um, either by um, countries like China, which are very much putting their political, um, their ideological, and their values stamp um, on their product, or um, or there's just you know big tech, um, and that that means big tech from any any part of the world um, is really writing the rules too, and and often not wanting to, often not by design, they're not setting out to. Set standards, but they're just innovating and commercializing and getting product out onto that market and into the hands of consumers so fast that they're just setting rules and standards by you know by accident almost. So we do need to uh, we do need to catch up and we do need to think and keep a really firm, you know, anchor on you know why there are differences between how technology is applied and that the models do matter. But I don't think that there's an automatic authoritarian good, democratic bad. Um, what I think is really interesting is we are definitely seeing a shift towards industrial policy. Yes, 100% it is back in vogue. I think this is a correction that the West probably needed to make, recognising that actually, you know, while we had built uh, an entire system and the internet is the classic example, right, it was some, came out of the US system, built on the principles of free, open, fair, um, and and really about access for all and, and true democratization of information. Um, unfortunately, that that ideal has not survived contact with some authoritarian nations who have who have sort of changed that a little bit. Um, and then you start to think about the players who who are utilizing the internet or, or information technologies like social media, etc. And we have found ourselves very rapidly on a deeply unlevel playing field so I think what we needed to do and what we're seeing in the West is just an attempt to say hang on a minute um, we've clung very tightly to the ideals that were uh, there at the start the establishment of this technology breakthrough that we called the internet but um, now we have run into reality and now we have seen our freeness and our openness turned and used against us. We're having information manipulated. We can't necessarily trust what we see. Um, In terms of industry access and um, cooperation, we now have big American companies going to the government saying, uh, we can't compete uh, with Chinese companies. We can't get to that price point. And the reason we can't do that is because you haven't invested in us in the same way um, that China has. So we will always be outcompeted on price when you've got such a heavily subsidised, you know, really unlevel global playing field. So some of this industry policy is good um, and it is a correction and it is necessary because it reflects reality. But I would not want to see us go too far down the same road as China. That is not the model. Um, That model has some serious problems. Um, And again, this is where I might like to like to turn to you. I think there's a necessary bifurcation of technology. There is a necessary splitting indeed. But um, I think, you know, the ideas like coopetition, um, you know, some of that language where you sort of think, you know, you don't want to turn this into into that black and white binary world of one way or the other way. You want to preserve a lot of those principles that underpin what we were trying to do with technology under under liberal democratic principles. Um, but we also need to protect ourselves and not be naive or, or put ourselves at strategic disadvantage. What are your thoughts on that, Catherine?
1: <laughs> oh, well, I'll start by echoing some of the things you said that I, I really like. Firstly, I haven't heard the term, is it coopetition?
0: co
1: I love it. Um, every <laughs> academic loves a new buzzword. Um, I also like there that you were focusing very much on how technologies are applied as opposed to the technology itself. And I think sometimes we get in de- definitional definitional circles when we're talking about emerging or critical tech, because some people are talking about the kind of fi- foundational basic research and AI as, a, as an entire concept, whereas others are talking about, well, let's look at how AI is applied to government decisions, or let's look at how it's applied to uh, surveillance, uh, and I think that's possibly a more um, useful conversation to be ha- to be having. One that's focused on application because it also helps us to zero in on one of my other favourite concepts, which is risk and how you manage risk and how you assess risk. And I think that's probably my version of co is thinking about um, what when we're thinking about a particular bit of technology or a particular application, whether that's TikTok or surveillance cameras to take two things that have been very topical in Australia and the US and other places of late, it's thinking about how those applications might cause risk to our security and democracy and then how we manage that risk. Uh, and I think that also ties back into your conversation or your points around everything's not black and white here. It is way too complex technology is a complex system of systems with so many different interdependencies, uh, so many different players. And it's not just the US and it's not just China. There are others here as well. But like anything that's black and white gets us a helpful starting point for a conversation, but it's probably not going to get us to the end of that conversation and the solution. It's going to be shades of grey. Risk management to me is a way to think about that because it's a way to uh, think about how different technologies and applications thereof actually affect us and therefore what treatment is appropriate. Sometimes that's going to be a really hardcore treatment that says we we just won't have this in our supply chain. Sometimes that's going to be a really kind of strong muscular response like we need to have a sovereign capability here so we're going to invest in industry policy, um, we're going to beat out the competitors, we're going to pick winners uh, and sometimes that's going to be a little bit softer um, like being aware of the risks but figuring out a range of different ways to manage them through technological solutions, through people and through process as well
0: yeah great I, I I really I really liked your talking there about risk management and it's interesting at a number of events lately, I have had risk management experts come up and say we're really we're really grappling with this. We find that um, you know we tend to think a risk management approach lends itself to to some of these problems, but where even in our own industries, Still doing risk management in quite siloed approaches, and we haven't really grappled with this whole concept of political risk and mm. national security risk, and um, so and. But I, I think there's really something in that, Catherine, around um, you know risk management and treating, and it's a it's a
1: really nice parallel for me, the one that you just made. Well, well if I can venture another opinion, so a lot of the the reason I think we're so fascinated by big tech and technology is exactly what you said. We've got the locus of power shifting to the private sector. And I think that's why risk and risk management is a really powerful concept because it's actually the native language of business people. Businesses think about risk all of the time. And when we are able to have conversations about risk, it gets the government people in the room um, on board, it gets the business people in the room on board, and I think it gets more cut through and kind of common ground than some other frameworks we've maybe used in the past. Even talking about the national interest um, is weird and complex for a lot of businesses, many of whom are cross-border and most of whom don't spend their days assessing and thinking about national interest. They're thinking about shareholder value. They're thinking about um, what their products and services are. So I think risk is almost that that uniting term that can bring. Both the private sector and government together, when we address what's a pretty complex problem set. But I'm going to throw it back to you now. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's okay. enough for me. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to throw you um, the the curveball that I I foreshadowed before. Everyone is talking about around the world at the moment. That is TikTok. Um, now, of course, TikTok's a social media platform. And we often, when we're talking about big tech, go straight to social media. It's about a lot more than that. But am going to fall into the trap because it is so topical. And it's a really good example of uh, something where we've got an authoritarian uh, linked platform in terms of TikTok. It's a parent company. ByteDance is a Chinese company, but it's also not state owned. It kind of exists in this gray zone of, of, of Chinese, um, within the Chinese system, within Chinese law, but it's not state or a government platform. Um, but it's pretty controversial right now. We've got governments around the world taking it off their devices. We've got live debates, uh, particularly in the US, but in other places about a more uh, wide ban, a more kind of broad spectrum ban of TikTok. What's your take on all of this Um Conversation is—is is TikTok a canary in the coal mine for conversations we're going to be having ad infinitum about Chinese technology companies and their products and services?
0: That's a nice term, canary in the coal mine. And I think it's—you uh, know—in in a couple of years when we look back, it, it maybe it may like like Huawei and the and the five G moment. This might be another one in and for the social media um, and the online world. Um, so there are several aspects to this. I, I will first say um I am not the resident expert, but I'm incredibly proud to say Aspie's done a lot of really great work, very granular work uh, and very data-driven work on the issues associated with TikTok. So anyone who's really interested in this, please do go and check out that product because it's um it's a it's very rich with, with information and most importantly, like really, really strong evidence for, for what it's talking about. There are two key aspects. One that most people sees on here is the data, the security of data, safety and privacy of data. Um, and you touched on this before. Does it matter? I mean, so many of us are just so keen for convenience, you know, give me convenience or, or give me death that we will sign away almost anything when we, when we hit those ticks on the privacy agreements. What we're not understanding when we tick those things with um, a company that comes out of China is, as you said, They are held to Chinese laws and they are incredibly different to the laws that apply in the United States, in Europe, um, in Australia, certainly in in most other parts of the world. And that does mean that that data is um, going to be made available to the government for whichever purpose it needs, be that intelligence, be that feeding the big data machine that creates AI as a capability. So, you know, just, just the sort of the data harvesting side of the house is, is risky. A lot of people will say, well, it's TikTok, it's silly little videos and it's, you know, it's just fun. Um, So what if they get sort of some of that data from me or they get my views? Well, you know, let's not forget that this is all feeding a machine. Um, and it is doing so in ways, and it is able to be used in ways that it cannot be in a, in, the, in our system. So when you tick the tick on TikTok, <laughs> it's not the same as 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 ticking the tick on uh, you know I guess Facebook or or Twitter, and even those uh, platforms have have concerns, right? But I think that the lesser known and less talked about issue here that I think is probably equally or more important is around narrative and information manipulation and let's um i think recognize right up front here that TikTok is a heavily government censored platform um so what you are seeing is not just people putting out whatever they want um what you know they're feeling like doing a nice little dance and talking about whatever you know it can seem really benign and really fun often it is actually a tool of propaganda it is shaping perceptions and it is doing so very deliberately um and it is often doing so at the behest of the Chinese government this is a key difference between the way platforms work uh in the west and in authoritarian authoritarian nations like China and again like you said China's not alone um you would have had a lot of Russian tech companies working this way and in, in Russian social media uh Iranian etc um so look it is it is this discourse shaping um, and perception shaping that actually is is really quite concerning because it operates at that level almost below below the conscious um, but it is it is having a really strong impact and that impact is becoming more and more measurable um, in Western societies and it's almost like we don't know what's happening to us so there's a lot to be thought about there is a lot here. Um, I think people can sort of want to dismiss it because it's, um, it's tricky and no one wants to sort of, you know, it seems technical. It, it's not. It's really quite simple. There are some major differences uh, between um, and concerns, I should say, with, uh, with TikTok, and they come down to those two court issues, one around around the use of data, the second around narrative and the way they use the platform to shape, um, to shape the global narrative. We'll be right back.
1: Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Do you think we do enough to talk about this publicly? I mean, there's a lot of media headlines, right? But do you think there's enough political leadership on this issue? And the reason I ask it is because as we've been as we've been talking, I've been thinking about an, an analogy. So you started off talking about Huawei and our moment there saying, hey, we don't trust that. It's a high-risk vendor, risk. We don't trust it. Um, but whether or not we had Huawei kit in our 5G or another uh, company's kit in our 5G, kind of doesn't matter to the average consumer. It's a bit like, I don't know, car analogy, not my strong point, but it's like a carburetor from company A versus one from company B. You don't see that when you're driving a nice shiny blue car, but TikTok's kind of like the nice shiny blue car. You know it when you drive it as a user and you have a preference for that over a red racing car. I can really say I'm a car fan here by the <laughs> bloody nature of my analogy, but it's, it's different to the background kid. It, it is it's a platform, it's, it's got millions of Australian users, most of whom are under the age of 25. So they're not your usual demographic for engaging with risk or engaging with national security conversations. Are we doing enough to bring them along for the journey? Because if we say this is super risky and we don't think it's a good idea, heck, they like the blue car, they like driving it um, and they're not going to switch easily.
0: Yeah. Yep. And the blue car is, um, you know, it's it's probably a little bit cheaper. It's super easy to use. It's, um, you know, it, it's a lot of things that people
1: want. And all your uh, friends are driving one too.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. You can go to the blue car club. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think we're doing enough, Catherine. I really don't. And it, it is a hard conversation. But we've got, we've got a real, um, I, I think, tendency. Uh, I, I, Definitely in Australia, but I think in many Western countries to to not really want to be dragged into this conversation either. So it's a tough one for governments trying to lead a conversation here because people say, well, you know, Americans and Australians and everyone's on Twitter and whatever, and they're all trying to influence us somehow. Um, what's 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 really key is distilling the difference? and why it matters and again being able to point to that changing perception and changing the way our younger generation is thinking which you know over time actually changes our politics and actually reduces our um you know our demand our own demand for democracy and and liberal systems and so again distilling it to its most simple parts and and really differentiating and saying yes of course we understand that you know everyone's marketing everyone's doing um you know what might look superficially like similar things um in and with their cars but this blue car is different um I I really would love to see some effort uh go into some some public explanation and some public awareness um raising around around this issue because uh, you know I, I do think you're right I think people are you know they it's not laziness. It's um. It is you know. It is just generally they're they're perplexed. Why are you saying this is bad and this one's good? Why is the blue car bad and the red car good? Um, we do actually have to do some work, um, to to create the right messaging that will register and and that actually really clearly cuts through that. But what's the difference? That that what that is constantly thrown back. And we do try and make these differentiations between. Tech that generates from China and authoritarian countries versus tech that is generally produced and
1: coming out and commercialized by more Western or liberal democratic countries. I almost think you could argue that this is one of the problems that has faced our tech security policy writ large. This idea of caveat emptor, that the buyer beware, uh, we've pushed a lot of decision making onto users. Who I agree with you, they're not lazy. They're bewildered, and also they're not really supposed to have a view on these things. And often they can't. There's a collective action problem because there's only a few tech platforms to choose from. There's only a few different um, software options in different areas to choose from. Thinking about, you know, TikTok versus Facebook versus Twitter, that's a hard conversation to get into. But it's it's a similar position to why we've got such a problem with cyber insecurity, because we often foist security decisions onto individuals. The National Security Agency in the US has just put out a pamphlet on how to secure your home well, uh, your home Wi-Fi router kit that I, notionally as someone who works in the cybersecurity industry, couldn't really understand or apply to my own home uh, router network setup. They're trying, which is awesome, but we probably need standards um, that are put onto the companies distributing those routers rather than leaving it up to users to be IT experts at home. And I think that's what we're kind of doing with TikTok. We're relying on 18 to 25 year olds and, and younger to be security experts and privacy experts and propaganda experts, which doesn't really sound like many of their day jobs.
0: No, it certainly does not. In fact, it's about as far away from their day jobs as they want to be. <laughs> so, so I I couldn't agree more. I think that golf, you know, you, you nailed it there. That gulf between individual responsibility, um, and and government responsibility, and and look, I think for for a number of years there was quite an adversarial relationship with big tech um, and you know there was there was a bit a lot of pushback and they wanted to retain a lot of independence they didn't want to be overly regulated and to be fair a lot of the regulators didn't really understand a lot of the technology and were probably not coming up with the right kind of of regulatory solutions to this tech but I feel like we are in a better moment um, where we, we can try and, and create some kind of Uh, continuity, some kind of connection between government, uh, private sector and the individuals as users and help delineate who's responsible for what and where the best and the most efficient um, kind of responsibilities, authorities and standards lie and where those, you know, where those responsibilities ought to be. I think we're in a better place to have a more useful conversation on that now than we have been for a long time, um, but you speak to a really important gulf and, and I'm with you. I don't think we can force everything down to the consumer. It's kind of the ultimate, right, though, in our, in our Western market-oriented model. You know, you think that's powerful. You think, you know, you're individual. individual. You, I'm a consumer. I have choice. I'm powerful. Um, what we're seeing at the moment is that we're actually very, very vulnerable um and, and governments, you know, don't quite know what to do about that, don't quite know where the limits of, of them usefully stepping in are. And private companies resisted that conversation for a long time, big tech resisted. I think they are coming around to a different place. Um, and again, that is a little bit because individual consumers are in a way demanding it too and starting to ask questions, but they're not our younger, they're not our younger um population, they're not our TikTok crowd. And and like I said, we've got um, you know, we've got some real dangers in some of these platforms that are very difficult to explain, but we need to demystify and we need to take the hard, sort of perplexing nature or character of that conversation away and just um and start communicating with with all levels of society because at the other end of this, of course, Catherine, is the elderly, mm. super, super vulnerable they need things broken down and kept quite quite simple. You know, why would you use this tech? Why would you not? And how can you protect yourself? And like you said, you know, if, if you would struggle with some of the guidance given to, to try and protect your own home through a modem, imagine what the average elderly person would do with that. You know, it just doesn't help them.
1: Um, I'm going to throw another curveball now. Um, we're talking a lot about US and, and China and historically, the US was the locus of tech power and now it's shifting to China. But it's not just those two countries. There's other upstart countries that are tech powerhouses. There's also a lot of um, countries, but also kind of sectors around the world that are big tech, but not necessarily lawful big tech. So I'm thinking about things like the growing grey or black market in propaganda as a service. You can go and hire hire a troll factory to spread propaganda for you should you so wish if you're in a liberal regime, for example. Uh, the spyware industry, um, I saw in the latest um, DNI report that's just been released, the Director of National Intelligence report that's just been released out of the US, they estimate the global worth of the spyware industry to be some $12 billion a year. That's kind of like country, uh, companies like Pegasus or platforms like Pegasus that have illegal, unlawful spyware that's infiltrating journalists' journalists' phones and helping illiberal regimes track them. What what is your thinking Beck, when it comes to not just other tech ecosystems and and kind of Silicon Valleys of of other countries, but also the growing proliferation of grey tech and black tech around the world that is uh, causing us challenges. And it's almost, um, you know, not even within the regulatory paradigms of the US or China, uh, let alone Australia. What do we do then? Oh, that's an absolute
0: ripper of a curveball. <laughs> and I'm probably going to swing and miss. <laughs> but um Wow, yes, this, this is a really, really tricky issue because some of this is, is, you know, again, it's really interesting tech. It's quite important tech from a capability perspective, but it all comes down to application. Um and and the fact that we uh you know we are increasingly seeing this um available to used by um you know those of us even in you know even in Western liberal democracies that you would think might have a have a different standard is 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 concerning it's not overly dissimilar. I don't think in the way that we're grappling with it or or failing to grapple with it to gray zone challenges that we talk about in a military sense as well right because it's it's um it's one of those things that has sort of snuck up on us it sits in that uncomfortable space between you know really clear legal boundaries or rules and norms and and not. Um, a lot of this is is likely criminality, but how do you pick up um and, and go after sort of criminal aspects? Is it even criminal? But again, this is where um, you know, why we're talking about this on this podcast is that the technology itself has just got so far ahead of our own ability to respond to it as governments, individuals, and systems. Um this is, this is a, a driving force behind why we've established the Sydney dialogue because we think this is just increasingly urgent the speed is only getting faster Um, and it's exactly these kinds of complex conversations that we want to have and and just to try and see: look is there more consensus here between government industry and civil society than we perhaps first thought is there some low-hanging fruit that we can that we can get after but this particular case, I mean, I don't even think this is talked about enough. You know, you, you mentioned this in, in TikTok. Do we need to be talking about it more? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are listeners on this podcast who, of course, they've heard of Pegasus when it when it hit the news um, because of specific high-profile cases where it was unearthed, but who otherwise don't understand that there's this proliferation of grey and black tech and what, what that even is and what that even means. Um, so yet again, um, it is it is about trying to keep up, not even just with um with the landscape, but with you know, with, with responding effectively in ways that protect our civilians and allow them to allow us to continue to to live under the principles and the the ideas that we are that are so important to our societies, economies and um and to our national
1: security. Now you're not paying me for this, but you did mention the Sydney Dialogue, uh, and I thought I would give a shout out uh, that it's happening in April the fourth and the fifth of April. It's a it's a highfalutin invite only crowd, but there are some public, uh, or at least one public live streamed component. I understand, so there's a way for everyone to be involved. What are you looking forward to most about this year? Because it's the, is it the second time that it's that it's run?
0: Yeah, it is. Thank you, Catherine. Um, look, it's it is um, it's version number 2 our first our first attempt uh, i shouldn't say attempt it was a highly successful event uh was was 2021 uh forced online because of the covid situation but this is uh so this is event number 2 sydney dialogue number 2 it's the first inaugural in person event as you said 3 to 400 people invite only um it's it's a global Uh, gathering. Uh, And what I'm so excited about with this is that we are bringing together players that are not often convened. Um, Like I said earlier, this is is government officials at the highest levels, influencers, policymakers, decision makers. This is industry itself, big tech, small tech, startups, um, innovators, entrepreneurs, um, those that that group plus civil society and civil society being your academics, your think tankers, but um, but also advocates, people who are who are thinking deeply and feel very strongly about rights and, and principles, etc. So it's bring those sort of three core constituencies together. And the reason we're bring them together is as we have just talked about and is apparent through this whole conversation, there is no one part that gets this right and solves the problem for everybody else it is a collective action problem. So um, we need to do that. But um, So what am I most excited about? It is, it is that we have some of the very best thinkers and leaders in Europe, um, some from the Middle East, some from North America, um, Canada, the US, of course, there. Uh, hopefully we'll get a couple from, um, from South America, and a lot of people from our region. So they're not just the big countries that automatically spring to mind, India to Japan, um, but we've got South Korea, we've got Vietnam, uh, we've got Taiwan coming, we've got uh, New Zealand, we've got Pacific, we've got a really strong Pacific voice, which is critical. So I don't see any other forum in the world focused entirely on technology and its implications for society, economics, and national security. Let alone bringing um, all of these players and all of these parts of the world together. There is a general like-mindedness behind the crowd, and that is by design because I think you can't really launch off into taking positive action unless you, you know, there, there is at least a foundation of agreement. Um, so we, we are bringing together a, a genuine, you know, group that that has at least a basic sort of functioning parameter uh, of shared principles, objectives and ideas. It doesn't mean they're all liberal democracies. Um, it doesn't mean they all look exactly the same and they shouldn't, but there is a general hewing in the same direction. Um, and so we're going to see where where we can get to and, and, and how high this consensus is and, and what priorities fall out. Um, from a really global perspective,
1: and I think um, really exciting to hear the conversations that happen between different parts of the world on this. Would absolutely, be a, th- a thing to watch out for. Would you resent me if I called it the Davos of technology? Would you say we're well, going to have more of a positive global impact, or is... <laughs> am I playing with fire? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't. I I I'm, I both like it, and I'm <laughs> hesitant. I, I'm going to let you say whatever you want to say. <laughs>
1: Um, What you do touch on there, though, is interesting, this kind of this notion of kind of trusted uh, partners. And that's something that seems to be more and more a topic du jour in tech and in national security writ large. Uh, And I'm going to play a little bit of national security bingo now and say the words AUKUS. Actually, I'm going to say AUKUS quad. Um, and just get everyone's bingo card kind of going wild (laughs) here Uh, because it's interesting that there's a tech dimension to both of these, right? The Quad used to be very much a traditional security dialogue had a tech layer introduced a couple of years ago uh, between, uh, that's the the dialogue between Japan, India, Australia, the US. Uh, And, of course, AUKUS, uh, it's very... uh, headlining at the moment, particularly in Australia, because there's decisions being made around our future submarines. But it's not just about submarines. There is, again, a tech layer, potentially even an industry layer. There's talk about cyber and capability uh, other than re- relevant to subs. So I wonder if you can talk me through a little bit of your thinking around how Australia or indeed others around the world are grappling with this notion of, you um, you know not not going to autarky, not putting up the walls, but trying to bring together trusted networks and trusted supply chains how 's that going, um, and what should we expect to see emerge from this space in future
0: yeah it's interesting it's um it seems like something of a no-brainer in concept, right? You know, like-minded, trusted partners working more closely together and sharing more and making sure that we are more, more than the sum of our parts and that, you know, together we have this collective, um, you know, collective sum of capability that, you know, really gives us, you know, the ability to maintain our edge and 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 preserve our way of life. Um the practicality of implementing something like what AUKUS envisages especially in pillar two on the technologies um, it's way harder than than you would than you would think um, it's hitting up against a couple of things one um a range of export regimes, legislation, etc, that were designed for and in a different century completely that are very much agnostic as to actors so that treat um so for for the us for example if it wants to export missiles um it treats uh, an application for for that transfer from australia exactly the same way as it would from from china or iran like there's just there is an agnostic approach and this is uh this is the same thing that sits at the center of our trade the world trade regime too this non-discrimination which is beginning just to be eroded and and, and chipped away at um to realize something like AUKUS, which is a very formal security pact, um, and it ties very closely by design, very close trusted allies. Um, we do still need to break through, and like you said, we need to we need to find the right balance between this tendency at the moment that we all have towards sovereignty and home shoring and thinking of security of supply as being as close to home as possible. Um, and really and balancing that and offsetting that with the efficiency that comes from from alliances and collaboration, um, the ability to, to leverage niche capabilities, so specialties that others have that you don't. Um, but again, we have got rules kind of getting in the way at the moment of that being implemented very practically. The quad's are a little bit different um, and I know that people do, uh, you know, they don't actually differentiate necessarily between a grouping like AUKUS and the quad. The key difference being though is that um, the, the quad is not, a formal security pact. It is a grouping that does, among other things, um, deal with um, some security issues cooperatively and collaboratively. And tech has become a part of that. Um, and it's a really important part of that. And I think um the, you know, they're going after really quite different things. So AUKUS is really at that pointy end, it is at that sort of more military high, high-end contingency preparing for um you know, for for military advantage and military competition. The Quad is more about sort of, you know, the broader societal, you know, those ideas around free and open Indo-Pacific, for example, how do we use technology and how do we work better together um, to, you know, to make sure that we're keeping our our region uh, open and functioning, etc. So a little bit of a difference but a lot of hope pinned on both of these um, mini-laterals, new groupings, um, again, they've come together for specific purposes in specific contexts. We're going to see more of this, I think, um, and that would be my top line takeaway, is that this this whole idea of minilateralism or agile coalitions that build around specific interest sets and recognise either shared concerns or shared capability objectives, um, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Um, and I'd like to see us be able to leverage things like the and not be too shy to say, look, while it might not be an AUKUS, it's not a pact, it's not an alliance, um, it's certainly a group of very powerful and very complementary countries that can do an awful lot of good for them, not just for the countries involved, but for the region. Um, and again, same with AUKUS, if we're not treating these mini-laterals almost like as hubs that then have outreach, uh, again, to try and spread that sort of network of of goodness and make sure that the work being done there where it's good work, um, you know, is not being
1: spread out for the benefit of many countries of the earth, then, then I think we're missing a trick. There's something inherently radical in what you're talking about, though, because, as you say, we're butting up against systems designed in a previous century Centuries uh, systems that we had a lot of buy into, like non discrimination, the kind of ethos of globalization, which maybe adds some irony to my Davos of tech comments. But do do you see uh, the the shift in Western liberal democratic countries at the moment as being a bit radical, where we're breaking away from some of those principles we've held dear, whether that's around trade, whether that's around being agnostic f- about where goods and services come from—a widget is a widget is a widget doesn't matter. Now we say some widgets look uh, quite different; they function quite differently. They've got different levels of risk. Is this a radical concept? And if so, where's the new settling point? Do you think we're we're there yet, or we're in for a bit of pain while we we wrestle through this? And that's where I'm going to leave the conversation, by the way. So this is the this is the kind of final final minute uh, on the spot. Um, the the the, the Million dollar question, um, off you go. (laughs) Yep, thank you.
0: I I think it is radical. I think we need to be radical. But we need to be radical while remaining anchored to some core ideas that make us who we are and that make our societies what they are. Um, And that is the key, right? We can be radical. Um, You need to make radical change, but you can do that without completely upsetting the apple cart and turning into something that you don't want to be. We have not settled on that right point yet. We are struggling enormously with this. I don't think we are yet being radical enough or bold enough. Um, And to the point that you have made consistently, we are not bringing the publics along enough. um, So they don't necessarily understand the need for it or or what it is that we're doing. Um, So I think we are in something of a pain point, but I'm also hugely optimistic that we'll get through it because I think we have um, the, the imperative is there Um, The understanding is getting better. The conversation between the right actors is getting better. But that willingness to be really quite radical and very bold with some ideas that have really long heritage in our systems, Um, you know, we're going to have to say some sacred cows and I'm not seeing quite yet uh, a real willingness to do that
1: and take the public along, really important part wouldn't be a tech conversation without us talking about being bold and maybe breaking <laughs> breaking some things along the way as we move towards a better future. Um, Beck, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, there's so many new ideas that are kind of percolating in my head, uh, but the, the key one to me, the key concept I'm going to remember from this is co- co- co-optition. Co-optition. You've already yeah. forgotten how to pronounce it. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I love that to kind of say we don't need to compete all the time. There might be ways we can and should collaborate. I think that's almost the the topic of the zeitgeist, whether we're talking security or or tech. So, Beck, thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. I hope to have you back soon and good luck with the Sydney Dialogue.
0: Great chat, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. I loved it.